welcome back to the Video Essay Podcast, a show featuring conversations with leading critics, scholars, filmmakers, and other creators about the craft of videographic criticism. I'm your host, Will DeGravio, coming to you here on episode number 12 of the show. Does not feel like a real number. I can't believe I've done this 12 times and that you keep coming back for more. Uh, I guess that means that we are a real podcast now. Uh, On today's show, I sit down with the one and only Liz Green, who is a scholar, a sound designer, and videographic essayist. I had a really interesting conversation with Liz and in particular about her work on video essays about David Lynch uh, and in particular his film Blue Velvet. The video essay is called Do It for Van Gogh. And one of the interesting things about talking to Liz is that, as I just mentioned, she has a professional background in sound. And so Liz is kind of the first guest we've had, I believe, who's really has a professional background in sound. Um, And as I mentioned to Liz, one of the things that I thought about when I was naming this podcast was you know, should it be called the video essay podcast? Because I know that a term that a lot of people use is audio visual essay because sound is obviously just as important as the image. So it's really great um, in this conversation to hear Liz talk a little bit about sound and the role that sound, the very important role that sound plays in making video essays. Before we get to Liz's conversation, I'm looking for a little bit of feedback from you the listeners. Uh, the first is about the length of this show. Um, I've been trying to shoot for show times um, that are right around 40 minutes or so. It isn't around 40, 50 minutes is kind of the sweet spot. But honestly, it's, sometimes the conversation just depends on if I do a good job <laughs> um, during the course of the interview and asking the questions. Because uh, sometimes I ask questions that just make just make no sense <laughs> um, and it's just waste time. Um, but I'm wondering what people think of the length. Do people wish the shows were shorter, longer? Um, I know in the, at the beginning, the shows were over an hour. I'm not really thinking about a specific length or what I'm shooting for. I just try to try to get it in that in that ballpark because it feels like a good time limit. But I'm not opposed to to going longer. I guess it's not really a preference for me. It's more you know just thinking. You know, I imagine people are more likely to listen to a 45, 50 minute podcast than one that's an hour and a half. But I could be wrong. Uh, we're not a daily or weekly podcast, so I guess the length doesn't matter too much. But I'd be really curious to know what people think. The second idea that I'm kind of want to toss out to all of you to let me know what you think is that I want to start kind of mixing up the format of the show a little bit. Um, I want to keep doing regular interviews because I think that's the most fun part for me. And I think it, it, it's you know incredibly valuable, or at least that's a lot of the feedback that I've gotten. But I'm also curious to try different things. Um, particularly after the way that the previous episode about the sight and sound poll went, I think it'd be fun to kind of do certain roundtables, discussions, um, whether that be on certain video essays or essay films. Like, I think it could be cool to do maybe an episode where we get three or four people on to talk about, you know, Godard, Godard's essay films or Scorsese's essay films, or we could talk about, you know, the work of one video essayist, um, or we could talk about feminist video essays, or we could talk about uh, epigraph video essays. Um, the, the, the opportunities are endless. And I think I'm not asking necessarily because, you know, whether people think that's a good or bad idea, but I'd be interested to hear that. But I'd be interested to know what kinds of topics um, that people would be interested in hearing. Are there certain essay films that you think that we could talk about or certain creators that you'd like to, to hear from? And if you have ideas, like pitch me 
an episode. Like I'm, I'm open to, if you say, Oh, like I really want to talk about, uh, you know, rock Hudson's home movies by Mark Rappaport. Um, and you want to come on and, you know, some other people who would be, who have, you know, studied that film or have a particular interest in it. Let's do it. Um, I have, I have no reason to, to, you know, I'm open to, I'm open to any suggestions. So if that's something that people are interested in, uh, please let me know. Um, and for both of these pieces of feedback, um, I'm pretty accessible online. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Will DeGravio or at Video Essay Pod as a podcast. So you can message me or tweet me there. Um, or you can find me uh, via email. It's just WillDeGravio at gmail.com. Links to that are available on our website, thevideoessay.com. That's all I got for you. Please let me know uh, what you think and if that sounds, sounds interesting. And now let's uh, turn it over to our wonderful conversation with Liz Green. And now we come to the interview portion of the show where I am sitting down here with Liz Green, uh, who is a scholar, sound designer, and video essayist. Liz, it's so great to finally have you on the show. Welcome. How are you doing? Thanks so much, Will. And it's great to be invited. I'm really excited for this conversation. I'm going to ask you the first question that I ask everyone, um, and that is, can you give us a sense of your background and what got you interested specifically in making videographic work? I think this is fun because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who've watched your essays and and kind of want to hear your backstory. So were there any essays that you remember watching that were particularly influential or you saw and you're like, hmm, like that's interesting. Uh, what's What's your origin story? <laughs> Okay, so my background is in making stuff. So um, I did um, an undergrad that was a practical um, film studies uh, degree. Um, I got a a degree at the National Film School in Ireland in sound design. And so my my practical work was uh, always at the forefront of what I wanted to do. And I left university and I went out working in location sound in the Irish film and television industry. So that was really where I was going uh, with with my work and um, through a number of different things I ended up coming back to doing postgraduate research uh, which I wasn't anticipating doing I thought I was going to go out and work in the real world um, and I got the book then um, I did an MA in film studies and continued on to do a PhD in film studies um, but the focus of my PhD was still in sound design um, so I, I think I've always been interested in that mix between theory and practice and what the video essay did for me was allow me to bring those two things together. I think I've always compartmentalized them and kept kind of my writing very separate to the stuff that I make. And it was only in really thinking through the video essay that I thought, oh, I could make my research part of the things that I'm making. Um, so, for example, I, I still go out and work on films. I go out and work on short films and do the location sound or the post-production sound. Uh, but it's very rarely research driven. It's me keeping my hand in the industry and kind of keeping up to speed with equipment. But the video essay was really exciting for me because I could see the work being created. And I think one of the first pieces I saw was by Catherine Grant, or the first 
thing that I recognised as academic video essays was by Katie Grant and uh, I was really excited by the work that she was doing and it was really inspiring her work and I think Kevin Lee's work and I didn't really know that it was called video essay I didn't really understand the terms at that point in time but Kevin Lee and, and Katie Grant's work were, were very exciting and got me to start thinking about oh I, maybe maybe I should try uh, this kind of stuff and it was actually on Facebook um, Katie Grant put out a call for people to make a video essay I don't know if she called them video essays maybe she did it was a 10 favourite films beginning with a letter and um, it was a prompt for people to do these so that was the first thing I did I made uh, my 10 favourite moving images beginning with G Um, I think Katie gave me the G based on my surname and I had so much fun with that Um, I spent the whole weekend gathering material and um, putting it together and uh, yeah I loved it and like I got the bug at that point in time yeah it was it was wonderful that's such a great uh, origin story but I'm wondering you mentioned something interesting which was this this notion of, of terminology and I mentioned to you before you know we started recording that this is something I wanted to talk to you about and that is that some people prefer the term audiovisual essay I think even Katie herself uses that term and you know, the reason for that is that audio is just as much a part of this work as anything. And it was actually, I went back and forth about whether to call this the video essay podcast because I wanted to acknowledge audio, but video essay is sort of the umbrella term. But I'm wondering you specifically in your background in sound design and sound is an important part of your own work, you know, do you prefer this term? And also, do you think that sound is something that often gets overlooked when we talk about video essay? I I kind of slip between using video essay as a kind of a shorthand, but probably my official line is the the audiovisual essay. I I teach a module on the audiovisual essay, but when I'm trying to recruit students and promote the the module to them, I call it the video essay because they know what that means. So they they, they look at this stuff on the internet and it's, it's very easy to understand. So I think the video essay is probably a better term in terms of people readily understanding it. But I think audiovisual essay has the advantage of incorporating sound within it. And also we don't really do video or we very rarely do video anymore in video essays. I mean, I think Cormac Donnelly's pan scan Venkman uses video within the within the material, but not many other people are working with video. So it's not it's not an important point. But I think um I think audiovisual essay technically is probably what I'm more comfortable with, but video essay is probably what I use more often. But if I'm writing something down and being more precise, I'll go back to audiovisual essay. Do I think sound is overlooked? I think it, I think sound is treated in the video essay or the audiovisual essay uh, as it is in film studies. I think um, there are people who are very tuned in to thinking about sound and there are people who are not particularly interested. And I think that's reflected in the work that gets made. But there, I think it is a great medium to work in sound. And I think that's one of the things that really drew me to it. I got quite frustrated with some of my own writing, uh, trying to t- describe sound and realising it would be much better to just be able to play it. And that's the great opportunity of a video essay or an audiovisual essay is to be able to just play it out and let people hear it. Right. Exactly. That idea of quoting 
that we say often with with images, it, it applies just as much to sound. And it was fascinating to see, I think maybe two or three um, months ago or, or a few issues ago of uh, In Transition, there was a, a uh, an issue just devoted completely uh, to sound. And it was really interesting to, to see all the different things that people um, were doing uh, with sound. And I'm wondering how your own background as you know, a sound designer and your production background, how does that inform the way you go to start a project? Um, because I have to imagine that you, you just your, your practical experience, but also your, your scholarly background is, you know, must in, must come out in your work in different ways than perhaps someone who is a scholar and is well-versed in the theory of sound, but wants to, you know, doesn't have that more practical experience. Do you think that informs the way you approach your work? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. I don't really know how other people approach their work. So I kind of find it hard to, um, to imagine myself into someone else's shoes. But I, I think about sound as a starting point with almost everything that I do. And even if I'm not consciously trying to address sound I think I'm thinking in those terms um, so I think it is framed by that I think it is framed by that practical um, experience of working in sound and some of the parameters I put on my own work will be how do I not get in the way of the soundtrack here or if I do get in the way of the soundtrack is it justified and how just how am I justifying it so I think that's that's part of some of the questions that I ask but I suppose in terms of what I do I I suppose I work off I work over across a range of software which might be slightly different to other people I imagine a lot of people working in the video essay work in something like Premiere or Final Cut Pro and, and they're perfectly good spaces to uh, work in but I would almost always take my project into Pro Tools and into Isotope at some point to do some other kind of tweaking or uh, but that that's because I was trained to work in Pro Tools so I get frustrated with the limitations of the editing software but that's just for myself I I I wouldn't finish a project without bringing it into some sound post-production. The reason I, I think I'm just obsessed with with sound is because it it seems it's one of the more daunting things to me um, when I go out to make a video essay because I it just I, I just think I don't under I don't understand it in like a in like a technical I, I don't know why it's like a, it's like another language to me I think um, I don't know if that's the best way to describe it but I I think more and more. I'm starting to think about it more because I realized that that the sound is essential to bringing me uh, into the into the you know into the world of the video essay itself, and I and I was particularly just overcome with the sound design of your one of your more recent video essays, which was uh, looking across the abyss, uh, human non-human animal, which is incredibly just poetic, and I just kind of felt the sound and images just coming over me. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit the sound design in that piece uh, in particular, um, and how you kind of used it to inform the more like poetic uh, elements of the piece itself. Well, I suppose that that one is a good example, and thanks for watching that. I think you're one of a very few people who've watched that. Um, but um, it's um, it, it was I wanted with that piece to do something different, and I didn't manage to do what I wanted to do. I wanted it to be a focus on listening, and um, it would have taken me a lot longer to do that and to come up with um, a more rounded theoretical argument. So I relied much more on writing about looking at animals and. Um, for that, I knew straight away that I couldn't do it as a voiceover. 
Um, because I didn't want to get in the way of the soundtrack at all. But the first, it's kind of in three parts. It's kind of um, punctuated with uh, th- uh, with quotation from different uh, philosophical, uh, philosophical perspectives on animals and non-human animals. And um, I broke it into kind of three parts where there's a split screen of The Black Stallion and Never Cry Wolf, which are two films by Carol Ballard. And I've, I've been looking at these films for quite a long time now because I did a PhD on uh, Alan Splett, who is a sound designer, and he's more famous for his work with David Lynch. But he worked with people like Carol Ballard and Peter Weir and Philip Kaufman and a bunch of a bunch of other directors. But what I was really interested in, um, this project started with that split screen because I made another piece this is uh, going off on a tangent a bit but I made another split screen piece called Velvet Elephant which looked at Blue Velvet and the Elephant Man and there was these moments of synchronicity that happened when two people fell down in both openings of the films and um, and the sound design and the music works beautifully just mixed and without me doing anything to it and I was really intrigued both by the visual um, images but also the sound image of how that mixed and I found it, the exact same thing happened here with Carol Ballard's films so I was really interested in this idea of the sound designer being an auteur in his own right and bringing that kind of sensibility to the films so the two opening sequences have a young boy and a man uh, almost drowning they both become submerged and then um, they are able to overcome that near drowning experience and uh, they're they're two very different environments like one is in the sea one is in ice in a lake and uh, they 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 seem to work in an audiovisual way really well and then this the second section is from the black stallion and it's uh, this beautiful piece of cinematography um of this boy dancing in the water and uh, trotting with a horse and i use the music from um from the film by carmen Coppola and Francis Ford Coppola's father. Uh, With that, I used a different piece of music to the music that was originally in the film to try and work with the quotation. So I was trying to work in that mode um, that Katie Grant has really developed of the epigraph and trying to get the rhythm of the text to work with with the music. And then the final section was um, from Never Cry Wolf using John Berger's work on looking at animals and thinking about the idea of a man and a wolf um, and how they comprehend each other across an abyss. And again, the whole piece, I I really wanted it to be something else and it, it ended up being quite a limited experiment or exercise in the epigraph but I'm, I'm, I'm delighted you saw it but I I think I was I was trying for something very paired back which is which is what it is I think it's it it's it's punctuation in an odd, odd kind of ways and I don't I don't think it necessarily flows as one video essay it's more it's more separate pieces put together if that makes sense mm. It does. And I, I was affected very deeply by it. I'm looking forward to one of the things I love about watching video essays is that it form it informs my film watching, right? Like sometimes I'll see a video essay, I go, Oh, I've never seen that film. I'm not familiar. Now I'm gonna go I'm gonna I'm gonna go check it out. I, I'm very interesting interested to hear that the in particular the moment with the 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 dance sequence of the horse in the water, as you call it, that was not you put in that sound over the image. And one of the things 
Jason Mattel wrote in this year's Sight and Sound poll was that one of the attributes of videographic criticism is that you manip you do something to the film, that you manipulate it in some way. And I think often it's far more easier to tell when the image has been manipulated than the sound. And I'm wondering if that's something that you think about in, in creating your work. And do you think it's it's important to somehow indicate that the sound is has been manipulated while you're watching the video? Because obviously when you look at the credits, you're able to piece it together. Or in this case, is that just my own ignorance of, of the film, not knowing the film? It's a, no, it's a really great question because um, I, I, I do think it is it is an issue. If I think if I was manipulating something that was ethically dubious, I think I would have to highlight the fact right. that this was this was doing something different. But I think for that piece, um, the music is from the soundtrack for the film, but it's right. from a, a different section of the film, and it right. just works better. But I don't have any problem with people knowing that that that, right. that I've used, yeah. I've manipulated. That is the intention. I nearly always do manipulate the sound in some way, but it's it's harder to tell. You're right. It's harder to kind of uh, pinpoint what that manipulation is. And sometimes some of the feedback I've gotten is people saying, I know you've done something there, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Um, so I, and I don't know if that then has taken somebody out of the video essay and it's it's actually not a good thing. But I, I'm, I'm not too keen on putting up kind of credits like as the thing's playing and right. giving that information. Um, but Perhaps there was a there was a written accompanying piece with that that went on the Cinefiles um, website. So within that, I think I did mention that I'd changed the music uh, within it. So yeah, I suppose it depends on that context. But yeah, sound is much more um, manipulative in those ways, and you can you can do things with sound that I think can fool an audience or a video essay audience uh, much more. And it's not that I'm trying to do that. I really tried to make the other piece of music work and I just wouldn't. And I even tried changing the quotation to make that work and, and it still didn't work. So I was like, I went back to my original quote that I wanted to put with that footage. Yeah. Well, it's, it's almost tricky because I almost feel that a, as a viewer, I'm more willing to accept when the image doesn't flow as well, it doesn't draw me out of the piece. But I think the sound is so so essential to the flow of the video essay that, like, it's so much easy. It's so much easier for me to get sucked in. And then if if you do somehow indicate that you've manipulated it, you kind of get drawn out of the piece for a moment, and then it undermines it. So it's like this whole balancing act. But of course, I argue there's nothing ethically <laughs> dubious, so it's all right. But it, it is an interesting it is an interesting question. But I want to transition now to talking. Uh, about another one of your video essays, and that is uh, Do It For Van Gogh, which also has the uh, longer title of Do It For Van Gogh, Detecting and Perverting the Audience Position in David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Um, I'll put in my usual uh, plug is that you know before you listen to this portion of the podcast, you should go and watch Liz's video essay, which I will embed at the, the video essay uh, com because we're not going to we're not going to you know waste time summarizing it. You should just go watch it. But even if you can't right now, I think you'll still probably hopefully get a lot from the conversation and you can go back and listen to it after. So, but my first question for you, Liz, is could you talk a little bit about the uh, the process behind the essay? How did it come about? How'd you come up with the idea? How long did it take to make an essay like this? Because it's very, it's very dense and rich and I'm sure there was multiple drafts. So sort of take us into your creative process, if you will. 
So the longer title you mentioned um, was suggested by Alison Dufresne. She didn't suggest the title, but she suggested I have a longer title so people know what it, what it was about. Because I think only only audiences who know Blue Velvet very well will know the Do It For Van Gogh reference. Whereas I, I'd been living with the film for a long time and kind of thought, oh, well, everybody will know what it means. So I have to thank Alison for that. I think it was a good suggestion. The film took the, the, the uh, audiovisual essay took a long time because I've been working on the film or thinking about the film for a very long time. You probably know, or maybe you don't, I went to Middlebury to Video Camp One and um, it was an, a transformative experience for me. I say it's the best uh, experience I've had in my work life, um, those two weeks in Middlebury. And I came, uh, I think we were asked to bring one or two films that we might want to work on at Video Camp. And I brought uh, The Elephant Man and Blue Velvet. And uh, the first week I was there, um, I decided I'd work on The Elephant Man because I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get to work on the Blue Velvet. I, I have lots of problems with Blue Velvet. It's not a film that I find easy. And um, so I, I took the easy option and went with The Elephant Man for my first week. And then the second week I realised oh, I better start working with Blue Velvet. And so the project kind of came out of an epigraph that I did um, at Middlebury. I did an epigraph in the first week as part of the homeworks, uh, which is based on what Chris Keithley and Jason Mattel devised, based on, I think, one of Katie's kind of ways of working in the video essay. And the first epigraph I did, I wasn't too happy with. So I decided I'd make a second one in the second week. And I cut all of the shots of Jeffrey in the closet. I think there's 38 shots of Jeffrey in the closet over three scenes in Dorothy's apartment. And I decided that I'd put them in a linear cut and I uh, used a quote from Elizabeth Weiss on mo- uh, on eavesdropping in movies. And I took the sound of uh, Isabella Rossellini singing Blue Velvet. So I put the sound from the Slow Club together with the sound, uh, the images from the closet and put them together. And that kind of sparked something at that moment. And um, that was in 2015. I did that and... Um, decided then I wanted to make something on Blue Velvet and it took me quite a bit of time to come back to it for all sorts of different work reasons and it was really in 2017 that I started to really get a chance to look at that material again and I was really fortunate to come back to Middlebury again and I acted as a mentor for the uh, grad students um, who were there and over that week I got to look at that material again and it was actually a prompt by Jason Mattel who introduced me to Starstacks as a piece of software. I don't know, have you looked at Starstacks at all? It's this um, it's this stargazing software that allows you to put um, photo images in and it'll create a trail of your images. So if you, so he was showing me that and in the process of trying out that, so instead of doing a linear cut, by um, I took those linear cuts and got the um, JPEGs of that material and put it into Starstacks. But in the cutting of that, I, I ended up using Starstacks for another section, but not for that. But in the process of doing that and, and cutting the work in that way, um, I heard these hard cuts in the sound that I hadn't heard before. So I realised at that moment that you could hear uh, everything that was happening on the other side of the closet from Jeffrey's perspective in the same at the same volume as what you hear when he's inside the closet. And the um the sound editing is cut hard on the cutting between the footage um and that just made me hear the material entirely differently because I wouldn't have ever wanted to cut up the 
material in that kind of a way. And it was only through the process of putting it into star stacks that I heard I heard that. So it prompted me to come and think, actually, I want to think about the inside and the outside of the closet space. And uh, it, it prompted me to think about point of view and point of audition. And uh, shortly after coming back from Middlebury, I got an email from Miklos Kiss, who was editing a special issue of Nexus, where it was eventually published. And he had a prompt that had very strict parameters. And I was really interested in the parameters that he set, which were to analyse a scene. And it was to not be poetic. It was to be uh, explanatory uh, video essay. And I, I really liked that, that approach because I think I'm very attracted to the poetic and I can get lost a little bit sometimes in the poetic. And I really liked what he was asking for. So with some guidance uh, from uh, Miklos, I uh, set about... Um, making the video essay and it was through that process that I found a couple of more things so I found the two looks from Dorothy back to Jeffrey in the closet which allowed me to offer a speculative a speculative kind of ending and I then made an accompanying piece to go along with that video called Dorothy Isabella Dorothy um, that's in the more poetic mode so it, it kind of follows on from that video essay um, but yeah it took so it started in 2015 it probably really was made in a month of kind of continuous editing between November and December of 2017 and then I in February 2018 I went back and revoiced it so there was a lot of work over a number of years but there was a lot of time when I wasn't working on it. I love hearing that because I imagine there's a lot of people who have the beginning of an idea or who have started playing around the video essay and you know these things take time. Your, your, your process reminds me of what Katie described when she talked about the creation of, of the headless woman and what Adrian Martin uh, has talked about, about the video essay as a form of research and exploration. And so you mentioned, um, the, the, the parameter was to not deal with the poetic. And this video essay was, selected by many folks as one of the best video essays of 2018. And I was particularly interested in what uh, Tracy Cox Stanton had to say. Um, I'm, I'm just going to quote her in full, or not in full, but a portion of it. From the very beginning, though, the careful and questioning tone of the voiceover suggests that there's more going on here than an explanation of the scene's mechanics. Indeed, by the video's end, we're absorbed in a fascinating labyrinth of theoretical questions, ultimately feminist questions, about spectatorship and agency particularly as they invoke uses of the body, the voice, and the look. And so spectatorship becomes an important aspect of uh, this essay. And I'm wondering when you started uh, thinking about uh, spectatorship specifically, was that always um, a, a part of it? And how, I guess, how do you see spectatorship functioning in the video essay? Because as Tracy's comments suggest, it's, it's it, questions about it are being asked. It's not, there isn't a, a specific statement on uh, spectatorship. Yeah, I think so. I think I was always thinking about it in terms of um, voyeurism and eavesdropping and, and how we're positioned as spectators was key to that and how I feel implicated by the film. I suppose um, I've a. I mentioned I have a difficult relationship with the film. I think I first saw the film on video in about ninety one or ninety two, and I saw it in a flat with some friends. And I asked my friends to turn it off, and um, I didn't want to watch it. I just didn't feel comfortable with the material in the film. And then I saw it again uh, at a later point, and I can't remember when that was. Um, 
but I liked it. I liked it a lot. I thought it was a really brilliant film. And I've kind of wavered between those two positions ever since. I, I'm, I'm not resolved about the film. And um, I think that position of spectatorship is really important um, in terms of where I am, but also in terms of the research I've been doing into the film. So I mentioned I was doing a PhD on Alan Splett and Alan Splett was the sound designer on this film. And he stopped working with David Lynch after this film. He said he didn't want to work with him anymore because he was so uncomfortable living with this film day in and day out. And wow. although although they're best friends and they were best friends until Alan died, they, they never worked together again. I think that kind of got replicated in the process of making this. And I think it, it's what, partly why it took so long to make as well. But I love, I mean, I love Tracy, what you've quoted from Tracy, because I think that's exactly what I was hoping an audience would get. But it's it, it, it's difficult. To, I think as a, a video essay maker, most people make things that they love or they are fans of. And this is not a film I'm a, I'm a fan of, but it doesn't mean that I don't think that there are really interesting things happening in the film and um, but I had to be careful in terms of what I showed and what I allowed people to hear and I felt a responsibility with that in terms of controlling that material how how bright the footage is how layered it is how um what people are exposed to because it is a brutal rape scene that is at the heart of this video essay and to show that is is quite tricky and I think Tracy's right I think I had those questions those feminist questions about the film and about the body and about spectatorship um and probably couldn't have articulated as well as tracy has Uh, but i think i think that was always at the heart of it and um it took me uh, quite a bit working through it to to come to that realization and i think that's partly why i had to make the accompanying piece to go with it um that focused solely on dorothy and um and her character um it kind of gives back more agency to Dorothy within it. So, yeah, spectatorship is important and and the position that we listen from um, and and the relationship between the two was was key to how I had to approach this video essay. And I'm glad I made it and um, I'm glad that I don't have to still make it. I feel like I've gotten it out of the way. Yeah. Well, now let's transition to talking about a piece of Tracy's that was just published, I think, a, a month ago. In, in Nexus, um, and that is Gesture in uh, A Woman Under the Influence. I'll turn it over to you. I'm always interested to just, I since you selected the essay, I think it's only fair that uh, for you to kind of introduce it to the audience and talk a little bit about you know, why you selected it for us to talk about um, and, and just sort of why you find it compelling generally. Oh my gosh, I think this is such a brilliant piece of work. Um, It interweaves film theory and film history in such a beautiful way. Um, And it it uses the essayistic style of film essay and video essay and melds them all together. And it's such a light touch. There's such deep uh, research going on within this video essay and at the same time it doesn't feel it it feels it feels um it feels very gentle and it feels I feel very assured in her her bringing me on that journey her voiceover is incredibly effective and the pacing um is brilliant the arguments that she's making around gesture and the ghostliness of gesture um is really well done and she brings in quite complex ideas um like she's bringing in theories by Leslie Stern and Laura Mulvey and interweaving it with all this footage of um, Swan Lake and a woman under the influence and Black Swan and and then um, advertising and film periodicals and making this essayistic piece that's really um, 
profound and moving and uh, says a lot about uh, female bodies and and movement and gesture in cinema. I, I was blown away by it. Um, I, I, and I, I think it's such a smart piece and such an affective piece of, of uh, audiovisual essay. I couldn't agree more. And I like your description of it as a journey. I particularly like that it was broken up into ch- into chapters because as you say, it's so it's so dense and rich and and it flows beautifully but the chapters i think contribute to that wonderful pacing that you mentioned where it's we're 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 brought in and we have a second to breathe and then then we keep going um and i think it's got such brilliant breathing room in the, in the piece it, i think the the confidence of the pacing is, is is what makes it such a beautiful thing to watch and listen to yeah and i think also the the pausing uh, makes it, you know. Sometimes I think when the the risk with voiceover is that it makes it feel like an illustrated lecture. Um, that's that's what you want to avoid when you're doing a voiceover. In this, I think it not for one second doesn't sound like that. But in particular, the breaks to make it just feel like sort of very much conversational is not the right word, but it feels very inviting. Like you're being brought into like Tracy's mind almost like like the, the way that she's thinking and processing and synthesizing all of this information and it's it's incre- incredibly compelling um, it really is and i think that punctuation and chapter markers allow us to think about a, a number of different areas in that linear manner and then she layers images on top of images on top of images, which allows us to think in kind of non-linear ways about what she's talking about. So it's working in both directions. And I think and I think that's really exciting. And I think the form of the video essay is is following um that argument that she's making about gesture and the ghostliness of um of these other film references are um, embedding the, the piece itself with just all that history and all that theory that she's engaging with. And I think that kind of approach of superimposition or collaging is so effective. Um, and it feels very feminine. I'm, I'm very loath to use a word like that, but it feels feminist. It's definitely feminist, but it feels feminine, the, the way in which she's evoking these um these stories of films and and um, actors and characters across across the video essay. That technique that you mention of overlapping images, which is I think probably most often achieved by like adjusting the opacity of one or more of the images and kind of you know bringing them in and out, is so is so beautiful. And I think of it. It, it might seem foolish to like list you know, the most effective videographic elements or techniques like generally because it so depends on the essay and the argument being made. But I think that is my personal favorite uh, like like thing thing to do because and I honestly don't really know why, but I think for me is in doing so, you are yes, reappropriating the image, but the 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 collage is is creating kind of a, a new image in and of itself. And that's something that you've done in your work is this overlap of images and you do it quite effectively and do it for Van Gogh. So I was wondering in in relation to your own work, how, how do you think about that technique and, and what do you find so effective about it generally? I've not used it very much. I did use it and do it for Van Gogh uh, for the purpose of trying to collapse that space of the closet and to see... Um, 
to see that material together. And then there's two two shots of Dorothy that are superimposed upon each other. Um, and that those Dorothy shots maybe work more closely with what Tracy's done or what Katie Grant did in The Haunting of the Headless Woman. Um, that kind of bringing in another reference point to, to, to think through. And it feels, I suppose what it is, it feels like the skin of the film changes with the superimposition. I did it in a very short piece. I, I made a piece um, called the, the Shipping Forecast, which was about Ken Loach's um, film Kez and I, Daniel Blake. And it uses um, the sound from a Radio 4, a BBC Radio 4, have to, a shipping forecast where they use this piece of music and they use um, the, the sound of different places to tell what the, the weather forecast is going to be. And I noticed that Ken Loach had used it in uh, Kez which was made in 1969 and then I, Daniel Blake which I think was 2016 and he used two different sections he used the music and the sound of it in one and the other and uh, so what I did rather than do split screen or try to separate them out I tried to bring them together to layer them on top of each other um, and it was a bit of a quick piece and I don't know that I think I could have done it better or, or more refined but I liked how it changed the texture of the film and kind of allowed them to speak to each other through those eras from the 60s through to uh, recent times and I think that's what ha- works really well in Tracy's is that she's able to bring this historical material right up to the present and and make the gesture central to it um yeah when by the point where we get to the pavlova and the the swan material and th- those kind of layers that get brought in i just want to stay in that world i don't i don't want to step out of the audiovisual essay um it's it's such a beautiful place to be in and and that that layering is is so effective so i think in the do it for van gogh it's very different i think it's it's kind of to set up the kind of to be effective with the time within within that but also what i really liked about when they layered up in do it for van gogh was the ear became central central to the to the what's seen in the closet you to see uh, Kyle MacLachlan's ear in the central part of the closet um, so it was just something that made me a little giggle a bit um, but yeah I I think it's done and, and, and I think Katie's done a really beautiful job in The Haunting of the Headless Woman in bringing that material through um, from uh, the two films and and really it works as a collage to, to speak to and, and, and it is effective but I still think I went back on my notes for Do It For Van Gogh and realised that I had planned to do it as split screen and at some point I didn't note when or why but I changed it to something that was superimposed and I'm glad I did um, but th- I think they have very different effects on, on an audience Absolutely in in writing about um, this essay in this year's Sight and Sound poll Alison Dufresne called it a prismatic retrieval in reworking of gestural fragments. And that's in relation to, and I believe Tracy quotes Harun Faroqi in in the piece, this this notion of uh, not depicting the whole, but looking for, for, for fragments in detail. To me, that is the video essay, right? That is its unique advantage, right? Is that we can take one moment, one scene, as you do and do it for Van Gogh, and just as you say, put it, as Allison says, put it through this prism and just stretch it out, pick it apart, bring in all this material and explore it in new ways. And I think that the overlapping of the image is so clearly a blending together of fragments that it it, it is the language of 
of the video essay. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I loved what Alison wrote. It's, it's, it's beautifully, it's beautifully written. And it was, it, that's, that is exactly what, what Tracy does draw out from this, from this focus on one actor and her hand gestures and uh, how she moves in this one film. She traces this whole history and makes an argument, not only about gesture, but also about how we look at, at, at video essays, how we look at essay films and how we think, um, how, how we do our thinking and, and I know Tracy's very much influenced by that idea of material thinking and affective uh, film studies, and it, and it feels like she's made the piece uh, that you know absolutely supports the work that she's researching. Well, I think unless we have any other final comments, um, I think that that concludes our conversation. Well, thanks so much, Will. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about all of this stuff. Yes, absolutely. The, the pleasure was all mine. I, I can assure you, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Thank you so much again to Liz Green for taking the time uh, to come on the show and for a really wonderful conversation. Liz, really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Our next show will feature a conversation with Scout Tafoya. Uh, many of you will know Scout from just being one of the most prolific video essay makers currently online as a contributor to RogerEbert.com. Had a really wonderful conversation with Scout that is already recorded, so I really can't wait to share that all with you uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but in the meantime, be sure to go and do your homework, uh, which will be available at VideoEssay.com, and be sure to follow us on social media at VideoEssayPod on Twitter, like us on Facebook, the Video Essay Podcast, and please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Thank you so much, and until next time, peace out.